Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1060, air date May 17th, 2022. Good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Today, we're going to have an interesting discussion that I wanted to do about why do we still celebrate royalty. And the reason I want to have this discussion is because um, some of you may know that in the media, there's been the, um, a lot of news about what we know as the Queen's uh, Jubilee. Okay, And you may have seen this. It's out there. Um, it's, this is in the Daily Mail, the, uh, the Queen 96 walks to her seat at Platinum Jubilee Celebration and is all smiles as the nation salutes her 70 years of service, service, joined by celebrities, including Tom Cruise amid pageantry at Windsor Castle. And, and you can go look at it. It's a lot of press out there, but it's a massive event that was held to celebrate essentially the monarchy, in some ways, the British Empire. And the question is that we want to ask is, why are we still celebrating this? You know, and here's Tom Cruise over there um, and a lot of different celebrities showed up to the soap, Helen Mirren, et cetera. So the question I want to really probe is uh, today is why do we celebrate this and what does it really signify uh, to us as a culture? But more importantly, in this context, I want to actually review the history of Britain in, in a couple of glimpses uh, and what's going to emerge out of this systems analysis is that recognition that when you look at Britain, Britain actually has, um, unfortunately, I'm not talking about the British people. Let me be clear. We're not going to, uh, this is not a disc or attack on the hardworking people of Britain. We're really talking about the super, super elites, the British Empire. And we're going to, uh, in this analysis, um, you're going to learn about how a country or elites or small sets of people actually have no resources in many ways, um, no real uh, material resources, but use brutality. That is their resource to subjugate masses of people. And that's how Britain actually operated through massive, massive brutality. And the wealth that Britain amassed, the quote unquote royalty, which it pays itself on and and uses this massive public relations machine to make us all think that we should feel so good about almost uh, Britain, like their Disneyland. And you're going to realize that um, this was very, very well orchestrated when we look at a systems analysis. And specifically, what we're going to look at is you're going to understand this diagram um, about how Britain actually, this is how the East India Company served the elites of Britain to really... Uh, uh, rape incredible wealth out of India. And the analysis I'm going to share here has has not been really covered, frankly, by any historian. The latest uh, research work came out about a couple of two years ago by a, a woman historian, Usta Patnaik, in a book that she wrote. And she herself says that this analysis for probably 300 years or several hundred years was never really done. And it took an Indian woman to really do this analysis. And, we'll, and you're going to understand this diagram shortly, um, what it means and uh, how I've organized this. And it's really a systems analysis uh, that really uh, does this analysis of oppression 
and really will educate you and maybe make you think, why is it that we continue to honor the royalty? What is it about it? And you're going to probably recognize it's incredible about money that's involved um, and a public relations uh, engine that's there. Um, as many of you know that all the videos we do, whether we talk about politics, whether we talk about science or health, we always want to make people understand a systems approach to looking at this because it's only a systems approach that's going to give you, everyone listening, a real, a deep understanding of how to actually look at the world and see it as it is, not what you want it to be from a left or right approach, from a Democrat or Republican, from a Labour or Tory if you're in Britain, but to really see things as they are. So one of the things I've done is to create a course uh, called Foundations of Systems, and we've created a worldwide community where you can actually understand the relationship between freedom, politics, fighting for our rights, truth, science, and health, taking care of your own self, how these three things are actually all interrelated. And that's a systems approach um, that I want to share with you. Um, I want to play a video for you, which will really give you my journey uh, to systems. And then we'll talk a little bit about the course, and then we'll jump right into looking at, uh, you know, answering or probing this question, why do we still, um, you know, uh, celebrate the royalty? Welcome to VA Shiva. VA Shiva is a product of my journey across East and West, science and tradition, ancient and modern, that brings you the science of systems so you can become a force for truth, freedom, health. VA Shiva is a platform of revolutionary education, community building, and weaponry for unleashing local activism. My journey to VA Shiva begins in the chaos of Bombay, where I experienced diverse religions, languages, castes, and in a small village that had no running water, no electricity, where my grandmother, a poor village farmer, practiced Siddha, an ancient system of Indian medicine over 10,000 years old. She observed one's face, the art of Samudrika Lakshanam, to understand a body's unique constitution, allowing her to deliver the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Watching my grandmother heal others, I was inspired to study medicine, but I was also aware of the corrupt caste system of India, which denigrated a human being, where my family were considered low caste untouchables, where one's birth determined one's destiny. The grit and determination of my mother and father led them to get educated and to come to America, a one in a trillion event. Their actions inspired me to work hard and excel. While in ninth grade, I attended New York University in a computer science program, and subsequently at the age of 14, was given a full-time job as a research fellow at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. There I investigated the system of sleep using mathematics, computer science, and biology for sudden infant death syndrome. It was there in Newark where I invented email when I was the first to convert every feature of the physical, paper-based inner office mail system, including inbox, outbox, memo, carbon copy, blind carbon copy, attachments, into its electronic equivalent, a system which I named email, a term that I was the first to coin. On August 30th, 1982, I was awarded the first U.S. copyright for the invention of this system, recognizing me as the inventor of email. At that time, copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. I went on to MIT where I earned four degrees across multiple systems of engineering, electrical, mechanical, design, biological. That training led me to invent many other systems for advancing humankind. Echomail, 
the world's first intelligent email management system. Cytosolve, a computational biology system for eliminating animal testing to discover new medicines faster, cheaper, and safer. And to the creation of a whole systems methodology for certifying clean food. These innovations led me back on a Fulbright to India, where I discovered the missing link between Eastern medicine and Western systems theory, honoring my grandmother to develop Your Body, Your System, a powerful tool that will help you understand how your body is a system and how the inputs of food, supplements, and exercise bring your body back to its natural system state. And Systems Health, an integrative educational discipline that is now integrated into the VA Shiva platform that will enable you to learn the science of systems, the science of everything, be it your body as a system or our society and politics as a system, to reveal the foundational interrelationships between truth, freedom, health. Now is the time for you to be the light, learn the science of systems, build community and weaponize yourself to unleash the activism necessary to deliver truth, freedom, health in your local community. Welcome to VA Shiva. All right, so I want everyone uh, of you to recognize that we always take the systems approach, and the systems approach is something that I believe should be taught to every adult and every child. And so in order to make that accessible and to build a community and to provide you technology where you can learn this uh, by yourself or with others, I've created the Foundations of Systems course. But the fundamental goal of this is so all of you can really learn to think, not what to think, but how to think. And in the modern world, we live in a world of complex systems where we must understand these interconnections. So to make it accessible to every working person, you know, when I used to teach this course, we used to charge thousands of dollars. I'm giving everyone a $2,500 scholarship. Please take it. But more importantly, once you take it and you pass it, and this, I want you to listen to this, each one of you can actually become a philanthropist and give it to as many children as you want as a full scholarship. All right, so you take the course then you become a beacon of education and you offer the science of systems to as many children as you want. I actually launched this um, by going back to my village school in India and we gave it to all the students there. So please take advantage of it and really be an agent of change. It's something that you can do in a very powerful way because ultimately education is what changes the world. The other thing I wanna let everyone know is that the concepts in everything I share and the approach we take you can get in the book, System and Revolution. We've also made this book um, for free. Just You just have to cover shipping and handling. So please take also advantage of that. Um, and you will learn from this book, the science of systems, how uh, you can apply it to your body and pretty much everything on the planet. Uh, but it is the knowledge of systems that's really imperative for us to learn. So we don't all start attacking each other in this divisive way, which is what those in power want. And we're able to see uh, the reality as it is by taking a systems approach. So let me jump into our program today. So um, this is something that's really been hidden a lot, but people have probably heard that, yes, Britain colonized India. Many of you know I just got back from India. Um, and I've known a lot of this for many, many years, and I've talked about this, but I just wanted to highlight a couple of things. Um, one of the recent books that just came out is you know, people use the word Holocaust, I'm sure, to talk about uh, many people have heard what occurred in Germany. But, um, but what people do not know 
and it's unfortunately been hidden and really not talked about as a Holocaust and the killing of up to 10 million people that just took place. And this is a conservative estimate in the state of Bengal uh, after the East India Company took over. And we'll talk about that. And this was over 10 million years, uh, 10 years, I'm sorry, 10 million people were uh, brutally killed and famine was perpetrated. And this came out in a book by Amrish Mishra. Um, and he essentially argues very, very powerfully that, um, that he uses the word, quote unquote, untold Holocaust, which caused the deaths of 10 million people over 10 years, beginning in 1857. Now, 1857, if you know a little bit of Indian history, is an important point. That's when the British went from being a trading force to becoming a occupying force. Okay, they went from being a trading force to becoming an occupying force. They initially came to trade, and I'll show you the dynamics of this. So um, now the conventional histories were, oh, don't worry, only about 100,000 Indian soldiers died. But the reality is that the brutality of the British Empire, the royalty, which still profits from it today, they haven't given back their money from this profit, that, you know, close to just in um, uh, Bengal alone, about 10 million people were brutalized. All right. And you'll see pictures like this of starving people in India. When I came to the United States in the 70s, we'd see these pictures and then you'd have celebrities saying, oh, please feed, feed these people. You know, um, they're not getting enough food. But what people don't tell you, this is 1945. OK, this is before before, quote unquote, Indian independence. And what you will realize is between 12 to 29 million people across India died of starvation during the uh, control of the British Empire. And in 1943, up to 4 million Bengalis, Bengal is on the west east coast of India, starved to death when, um, and this is just one example, when Winston Churchill diverted food to British soldiers in countries such as Greece, while a deadly famine swept Bengal. Because essentially what the British did was, uh, remember Britain really didn't have any resources. They did have the resource of brutality but they didn't really have any fundamental resources. So when, when they went to China, they said, oh, we want to come here and trade. And China said, what do you have to trade with us? You got nothing. When they came to India, Britain really didn't have anything to trade, but they did recognize that they could be fiercely brutal. And they raped India, not only of jewels and textiles, but just food. Remember, India had three crop seasons. Britain at best had one. So the amount of food that India produces is quite Im immense. Uh, people forget India was an extremely wealthy nation, and we'll talk more about this. So Britain brutalized India. And these are just not to, you know, hype up anything. These are just facts. But a lot of that wealth was taken at the expense of Indians. And this is really not talked about by any historians, particularly the liberal elite historians in the United States and Britons will not talk about this. They'll talk about a lot of other things, but they'll miss these very, very important facts. In fact, Winston Churchill said, I hate Indians. They're beastly people with a beastly religion. And that's what he said. So um, now to those of you who are in America and, he, you know, we can't forget that um, Britain was pretty brutal to the American colonists. The difference between, I would argue, between the British um, and of what occurred in India and in America was a little bit different because India was fundamentally run by many, many kingdoms. There was really no India. India was many, many feudal kingdoms. So it's easily to isolate India, divide up people. In the United States, because it was a little more 
a newer country, there was at least 13 colonies that united. And but, you know, Britain was brutal here too. everyone remembers the Boston Massacre. Uh, you can read about it, but at a high, uh, it, it, a very important point, you know, tensions ran very high in Boston in the early uh, 1770, and 2,000 British soldiers occupied a city of 16,000 colonists, and Britain, as it went everywhere, imposed taxes. You know, those taxes were like the Stamp Act, the Townsend Acts, and the American colonists rebelled against these taxes. This is where the uh, cry taxation with that representation came, and... Um, this resulted in people fighting, and uh, the real start of the Revolutionary War was a Boston Massacre, uh, which was a deadly riot in March 5, 1770. And, uh, you know, colonists were uh, uh, f- attempted to fight back, and, the war- and it escalated into a bloody slaughter that really, um, you know, was the birth of the American Revolution. But it's not only in America such massacres took place. Britain had a history of doing this pretty much everywhere they went. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, PhD thesis that came out about a uh, half decade, a little more than a half decade ago. It says the empire of violence, strategies of British rule in India and Ireland and Ireland um, in the aftermath of the Great War. And some of you may know if you're uh, of the Armistar massacre, uh, sorry, Amritsar massacre, which occurred on April 13th, 1919. Okay. And the Indian people were having a peaceful gathering in a park called Jalian Wala Bag in a city park. And it's actually in the movie Gandhi, if you've seen it. I don't care much for Gandhi, as some of you may, may know, for lots of reasons. But um, anyway, in that movie, they show this scene where people are gathering uh, in Amritsar, which is one of the holiest cities of the Sikh religion, and the British Gurkha troops just mow down uh, 379 unarmed demonstrators. It's quite, uh, if you see it, it'll bring tears to your eyes. Um, and most of the uh, those who were killed were Indian nationalists who were meeting to protest the British government's forced conscription of Indian soldiers. Remember, the British really, again, had very little resource, including soldiers. They would actually force the conscription of Indian soldiers to fight in their war, in their uh, subjugation of the Indian people. Okay, and there's, uh, you know, you can find pictures of this, but essentially people were in this park and literally they were just mowed down, unarmed people. Okay, just pure brutality. Um, Another one, if you're of Irish descent, you may know is Bloody Sunday. And, you know, every year it's celebrated. This is in 2022, celebrated, remembered. And this is when, um, you know, 14 civil rights marchers um, were killed by British soldiers in one of the defining days of the North Ireland conflict, and that occurred about 50 years ago. And you can see the infamous killings of those 14 civil rights marchers were done by elite uh, parachute uh, uh, regiment in January 30th of 1972. So I'm sharing these dates with you because you can go back to 1770, you can go back to you know the 1800s, and you can go back to the 1900s. It's constant just brutality. Sorry to say that. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about the British hardworking people. We're talking about the British elites who unleash this brutality. And yet we continue to honor this and we celebrate this royalty. And you have people celebrating this queen who still profits from it. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand the psychology. Now, years um, after in Ireland, after uh, pressure from the victims' families, you know, the 12-year Bloody Sunday inquiry, 
took 12 years to do this inquiry, also known as a Savile inquiry, later found that the victims had not posed a threat to the soldiers. That's what's important. And what also came out was that finally, Prime Minister David Cameron issued an official apology for the killings on behalf of his government, confirming that those uh, killed were innocent victims. Okay. So again, the it, it was so clear that what occurred in Ireland was unjust, what occurred in um, Amritsar was un, unjust, and so on. Okay. So what I want to now take a step back to really understand um, the and follow the money the economy of it. Now, the narrative that a typical Indian is brought up when you're young, or many of the Indian elites are brought up, is, oh, Britain did so much for India, we should be so happy they civilized these darkies, right? They civilized the Africans, you know? They did so much for the American colonists, right? That's typically what's brought up. And even the Indian historians who are British trained, most of them, will never really go down to the economics and really understand what really took place, the amount of wealth transfer that took place. The narrative is you just see a bunch of poor Indians, um, you know, with starving and, and these people are just, you know, just poor people and they have nothing and the white man liberated them. Um, it's really not true. Um, you have to ask your question, why did Columbus want to go to India? Why did everyone want to go to India? Because India was, uh, you know, India was producing 25% at the time, the, the wealth of the world, 25% of the wealth of the world was from India because just from a geographical perspective, you have the Northern uh, uh, countries, uh, which can have crops um, as Utsta Patnaik explains in her, in her analysis, maybe one, one growing season. Well, in the South, you could have up to three growing seasons. So you had a place like India, which were growing cotton and, and all sorts of incredible, um, all sorts of incredible uh, uh, resources, very, very resource rich. The United Kingdom was not resource rich. Okay. They had really nothing to trade. Now, um, Utsta Patnaik's analysis, which just came out, she was a uh, economist. She said that she actually went and did an analysis by looking at British records to really put a number, how much money was stolen from India when you really add up the wealth that was taken. And we're going to see this and you're going to see how clever the British elites actually were. And the analysis that she reveals is 45 trillion from India was taken. Now that's if you look at the, the British GDP, that's, I think, a British GDP is maybe $1 trillion. So it's 45 times more than the entire wealth of Britain even today. And, um, and to understand how this happened, um, uh, I'm just reading some excerpts. Um, because a, com a common story that she argues that we're told is that, uh, that you know, the empire was sustained for long and it was a gesture of British benevolence. But the new research that she shows, and she's calculated between 1765 to 1938, um, Britain uh, essentially drained a total of $45 trillion, okay? $45 trillion. So let's really understand how this happened. Um, and by the way, um, to correct any false narratives, India was used to be called the golden bird, um, which was fairly accurate, as this writer says, because at the time, India accounted for approximately 25% of global net wealth, 25%. Um, so if you think about the 
world economies today is around 600 trillion. So if you take 25% of that, that's about 150 trillion in modern terms if India had sustained that, right? Um, but at that time, 25% of the net global wealth and India transitioned from that, from a prosperous nation to becoming a poor, quote unquote, developing nation, third world nation, impoverished one that until the end uh, of 1947. So basically India was completely uh, looted. So how did this occur? So um, again, I can't overemphasize to everyone, it, it, you have to take the foundations of systems course. I encourage all of you to become um, warrior scholars because when you take the course, by the way, you can get the book, um, and let me just show it up in case you don't see the link. If you go to vashiva.join, we've made it extremely accessible to anyone, but you will realize that everything we do, whether I look at a molecular system or a historical system, I start looking at interconnections. And what I did was from Utsa Patnaik's work, I started actually doing a diagram because, I mean, she's a great intellect, but it's sometimes hard to follow this. What I did was put it into a diagram. So let me explain this. So what you see here is that pre-1764, okay, remember, to give you a little bit of Indian history, or world history, 1457 is when Bosco da Gama, Port, the Portuguese, um, uh, you know, um, explorer comes to India, and then people start coming into India. Um, people came to India initially to trade. In the 15-1600s, there was an emergence of entrepreneurs and traders coming up in India in all these different kingdoms. So the Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company, the French came, the Portuguese came. Portuguese, Dutch, French, um, the British came to trade with these emerging merchants all over India because India had so much uh, natural resources, right? Textiles, spices, uh, gold. Um, India was a manufacturing powerhouse, okay? Seriously, a manufacturing powerhouse. They knew how to make stainless steel. So uh, uh, someone just said spices, exactly. So... What this diagram says, so prior to 1764, uh, the East India Company was the sort of the British conglomerate, right? Britain's conglomerate that came to India. So they would bring gold and silver. They would pay for that. So gold and silver was used to pay for Indian goods from Indian producers. And these Indian goods went to Britain, okay? And these goods that went to Britain, Britain used to obviously uh, for their economy there. They used to also trade those goods with other countries uh, to buy all sorts of things, lumber. In fact, they used to fund um, uh, from the capital they got for that, um, they could fund various activities. But but remember, look at, I just want you to look at this box here. They used to pay for this with gold and silver. So at this point, the trade was fair, pre-1764. Indians produced stuff, they made Indian goods. Britain got the goods and the East India Company traded in gold and silver, okay? Now, in 1764, the East India Company started moving towards being, remember, the East India Company, the French, the Dutch, they all had their little companies and they would actually fight against each other. And in the Battle of Buxar, uh, uh, Britain actually won a piece of, of they had got some leverage and using that leverage, they were able to get tax revenue. This is, again, 1764. Remember, they're collecting taxes in the United States. Um, there, uh, people started rebelling. But in India, 
they started after that battle, they moved into a taxation uh, force. So here you see after 1764, the East India Company, and just watch this, they, from Indian producers, the Indians, they collect taxes. Um, they collect quite a bit of taxes. And this tax revenue in rupees stays in India. And then they use these tax rupees, that's the Indian currency, to buy Indian goods. Notice there's no more gold and silver here. So the East India Company, after 1764, through Britain, takes taxes. They start collecting taxes. Just again, this is where the brutality begins. They start simply using brutality to force Indian people to give them taxes. So this tax currency in, in Indian rupees stays in India. And then they take this tax revenue, which they got through brutality, and use that to buy Indian goods. So this is basically simply called stealing, okay? Okay? This is basically called stealing, okay? Um, someone says, Prince Harry's hell-bent on taking down the monarchy. You know, Harry wants to create his own monarchy, Angela. Um, he, he's a not-so-obvious establishment of the British monarchy, okay? He's not really giving up much, but uh, we'll, we'll go more into that, Okay? But so this is what's important to understand. So Indian goods still flow to Britain, but they're not paying for it in gold and silver anymore. They're paying using Indians' own tax revenue to buy their goods. It's, it's, this is what you call stealing. And then Britain uses these goods for their economy. They use this to buy, they sell these goods on the open market and they buy timber, lumber, and they actually use this to fund wars all over the world, okay? Because they're not paying anything for this. They're basically getting free Indian goods. I hope everyone's following me. So they basically start raping the, this is the first uh, era of rape. They just take people's taxes and they use those taxes in rupees to buy Indian producers goods, which go to Lund uh, England. And they use that to fuel their economy by with those goods from the sale of those by timber and lumber to essentially start industrializing Britain and also use those goods to fuel wars, okay? So the war in uh, America was fueled by Indian goods, when you really trace it back. And that's what Utsa Patnaik did. Now, it gets even more interesting. One of the things we want to understand is something very important occurred in 1857. So remember, first they're trading Britain, then they start collecting taxes by just strong-arming people. Then they move into becoming an occupying force in the Battle of Plassey in 1857 in Bengal, now, in Bengal is where some of the Indian revolutionaries were coming up, like the American Revolution. They were fighting back. They said, screw this. They were trying to fight back, you know. And Britain basically said, we can't have this. So they literally take over Bengal with brutal oppression. And they just seize control of Bengal. And economically, they do something quite interesting. And this diagram explains it. Okay. So what do they do? And let me explain this because it's going to, uh, they go from the following. So what they do is, so remember, the East India Company through Britain is collecting taxes from people. Now there are people, the rest of the world over here, which also wants Indian goods. Remember, India was next to the United States up until 1947, the number two exporter of goods next to the United States. That's how wealthy India was. Incredible wealth. So what happens here, as you can see here, is that the rest of the world wants Indian goods. But what Britain does is they say, 
you can't buy Indian goods with, you can't buy Indian goods directly. You have to go through us. We are the sole distributor of Indian goods to the world. So think about what I'm saying. If anyone's run businesses, imagine you getting an exclusive. Imagine um, you get the exclusive to uh, sell iPhones in America, or you get the exclusive to sell iPhones in Africa. So Britain, through brutality, to the rest of the world says that you can only get access to Indian goods through us, to the rest of the world. And how does Britain, so Britain does massive just brutality in India. Just, I mean, just, just brutality. I'm talking about killing people, putting people in famine, massacring people, cutting off the thumbs of weavers. And we'll get into that in another video who are producing Indian goods and we can go on. But it was just through sheer brutality. Remember, Britain had nothing to trade with India. So what do they do? It was just pure brutality. And again, I want to emphasize, we're not talking about the British people. We're talking about the British elites, okay? And so this diagram, the systems diagram explains what they did. So the rest of the world wants Indian products. So what Britain does is actually the arrow goes here, if you're not seeing it here, goes down. Britain tells the rest of the world to give them gold and silver. Britain takes that gold and silver into their banks and they issue what are called council bills, like essentially a new currency. And these council bills were the only way you could buy Indian products. So let's say someone in Spain wanted to buy an Indian sari or they wanted to buy rice from India or wheat. They would have to give Britain gold and silver. So now Britain is amassing incredible amounts of gold and silver, which is really worth something. And then Britain issues council bills to the, to the let's say the person in Spain. So let's say they give $100 uh, worth of gold. Britain issues $100 worth of this paper. This paper is what the Spani Spanish trader gives to the Indian producer. So look what's happening here. The Indian who's working his butt off making the product doesn't get gold and silver. He's getting something called a council bill. Okay? And in order to now for him to get the currency that he needs to trade, he takes that council bill over here and he goes to the tax office, which gives him rupees, which, by the way, these tax, tax rupees were collected from taxes from the Indian producer. So he's basically getting his money back in currency wise, and he uses those rupees for his own economy. The Indian goods then flow to Britain and then the British goods, the British goods from Indian throw to the rest of the world. So the bottom line is this is called, again, stealing to the order of two. You, first of all, tax the Indian people and, and you take their rupees. You don't give them gold and silver. You tell the rest of the world you can't send gold and silver to India. You got to give it to us. You issue a currency called council bills, which is what those countries have to. That's the only way you could buy Indian goods. And then the Indian producer who gets those Indian goods then has to go and to the local tax office and he gets rupees, okay? So it's a complete way of ensuring that the balance sheet of India never gets strong. The balance sheet of Britain is growing, okay? They're getting more and more and more gold, raping India, 
and India's balance sheet is going down and down. Meanwhile, they're exporting tons of product outside. So they're exporting wheat at the uh, detriment to their own people. 10 million people die in India from famine because they're exporting wheat. Britain is getting the gold. Britain is amassing wealth. India is not getting anything out of the deal. Now, the question is, why didn't uh, the Indian people fight back where they did? In Bengal, they fought back, but they were brutally suppressed. So it was pure brutality. That's the best way I can explain it. And because Britain had set up such a massive operation in India, and the other thing that the British did well was they co-opted many of the Indian elites. Today, there's a, a system in India called the Indian Administrative Service. The British set up this entire administrative service of brown-skinned Indians to control all the other brown-skinned people. It's what happened in Africa. So when you look at this, I mean, look, I don't want to make a comparison, but there's so much we hear about, you know, a guy called Adolf Hitler and the crimes that he did and Nazism and the brutality of the Holocaust. But he is clearly seen as an evildoer. And um, but yet the queen, when you look at this picture here, right, these people are celebrated. They're in the National Enquirer. They get public play every day. You know, they get to resurrect themselves. They get to rebrand themselves. They have a massive PR machine, you know? And the, the obvious brutality, like of the Nazis, obviously is exposed and it's called the Holocaust. But what occurred to India, 10 million people at minimum dying, 45 trillion in, in uh, revenue, uh, stolen, and yet we celebrate royalty. You have the Queen's Jubilee. I mean, imagine if we celebrated, you know, the, what is it, the Third Reich's Jubilee. I think people would go really upset. So we have to really ask, why is it that we continue to celebrate the royalty? And I would argue it's the amount of money that was taken, the amount of public relations that's done, and we have to understand that the British Empire, the Queen, still presides over Parliament. She still meets with them. The monarchy is not dead. It is not just a titular thing. And if you look today, and I've talked about this in my earlier videos about the Atlantic Council, which comes out of Britain, they still control public policy all over the world. Public policy is controlled through the British Empire still to this day. And this is why I want to emphasize to everyone the analysis I just did, and I'll go back to it, when you really look at this, you know, um, it, when you take a systems approach, you can take this knowledge and you're able to draw the systems diagram. You can see that there's no more gold going to India. So what Britain did very cleverly, if you look right up here, they literally created a local economy of paper to basically take money from the Indians and give them back their own money. Meanwhile, over here, they're taking money from the rest of the world and building the coffers of gold and silver in their bank accounts. And all of this was done through sheer brutality, brutality, brutality. Nothing else, just brutality. You know, and then we're told, you know, we get all these James Bond movies and the Knight movies, right? Chivalry, it's all bullshit, I'm sorry. You're looking at one of the very powerful public relations machines 
that was created out of the British Empire to always make them look as though they're doing some noble service to everyone else. Everyone else is a bunch of low class, you know, bumpkins, and they are the elites. This is massive PR. So I encourage all of you to really think about this. And I encourage all of you to recognize that, you know, there's been tons of papers and research done on this. The Indian, the British trained Indian historians, very few of them will talk about this. Utsa Patnaik, a woman, brought this out. And I think what I've done here is to put it into a simple diagram so you can see this. The idea is to make this accessible. And that's why it's really, really important. I can't overemphasize that all of you, please learn systems thinking. Learn the foundations of systems. Do it for yourself. Do it for your children. We've made it accessible to children all over the world. You can take the course. You can then become an educator. You can be a philanthropist. But we have to move beyond this left-right narrative. We got to move beyond the theater because both wings of the establishment just keep dividing all of us. And they do this because they bank on the fact that you will not take a systems approach. You will just look at, remember I talked about the systems approaches. You have the big elephant and imagine being blind men, which is a reductionist, which is the opposite of a systems approach. You have blinders on and you touch the tusk and you think it's a, a, a spear and, and someone else touches a tail and they think it's a brush. You don't even see the whole elephant. And that's the way those in power manipulate us. They see, they make us see little pieces and they have us warring against each other. But when you take a systems approach like this, you see Britain is not so Great Britain. They're not Great Britain, they're not so Great Britain. And it's really, really in 2022, if we're celebrating foolishly these things called the Jubilee and, and even having things called the monarchy. And that's why even when you look at something like NATO, it is a vestige, it shouldn't even exist. It is a vestige of the British empire when you really look at it. So, but until you take a systems approach, you will not have the tools to explain this to other people. So while I do this explanation, I really want all of you guys to learn this. I hope you guys go to vashiva.com slash join, take advantage of the scholarship we're doing. That's where our movement is going. We wanna educate people. The elections are selections, but if we educate enough people and people start understanding this and they learn how to take a systems approach and then we can educate our children, particularly before they go to these things called colleges, then we may have an opportunity to significantly have impact. And we can do this, but it is through education. So again, uh, before I leave, I want to uh, emphasize to people, the book System and Revolution is now absolutely free. Please take it. Um, just cover shipping and handling. Get it. And uh, before, let me see if there's any interesting questions. John, are you seeing any good questions? Um, okay. Well, there's a lot of good uh, points here. You can see it. Uh, someone said looted my 50 trillion worth. Yep. That's right. 50 trillion worth of sterling. Yep. So please, uh, the, look, the, so I'm not here to lament about the past. The issue is what can we do now? What we can do now is to take a systems approach. You can apply this to your health. You can apply this to politics. You can apply to, if you don't want to be in politics or health engineering systems, but it, we live in a world of systems and we need to get down to the truth of what's going on. We need more of you to start doing these kinds of analysis and diagrams. I can't do it by myself, but I can offer you uh, the knowledge of how to take a systems approach so you don't have to go to MIT. So please do that. 
and take advantage of this. As I sign off, what I'm going to do is, uh, let me just go to this. So if you go here, you can uh, take the course, right? You get a scholarship. It's only 100 bucks. Uh, get the book. And before I sign off, let me just play one video, which will show you all the things that we put into um, the course. And by the way, the course is not just a course, but we've created an entire environment where you can meet other people. We have hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. My vision is all over the world, you guys start communing, interacting, looking at issues, and start taking a systems approach. But, but uh, we've created this gift for you. I hope you take advantage of this and be well. And let me just play this final video. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Welcome to VA Shiva, the platform of education, technology, and activism, so you may raise your consciousness to win the truth, freedom, and health you need to create the future you deserve. The VA Shiva platform provides this truth, freedom, health warrior scholars the following three capabilities. Number one, an ultimate education that is based on the science of systems. Number two, technologies to empower you to take charge of your health, as well as social media tools, independent of big tech, so you can connect with other incredible truth, freedom, health warrior scholars equally dedicated like you to winning truth, freedom, and health. Three, instruments for activism so you become a beacon of light in your online and offline community to educate others, growth, and advancement. VA Shiva provides you the foundations of the science of systems, the ultimate education. The science of systems provides you the missing fundamental scientific knowledge to understand every system in and around you. The science of systems will enable you to uncover the real problem and real solution in any situation and on any issue. Concerning the educational component, first you will receive direct access to to me to learn the science of systems in my three-hour live private online group class that I run every week. Second, you will have access to archive lectures so you can continue your education independent of me. Third, you can test your proficiency in learning the fundamental principles and get a formal certification for the foundations of systems. Independent of this classroom education, you will receive also four important books. The first book is the best-selling classic Systems and Revolution from which you can learn all of these concepts and more. The second book is The Science of Everything that will educate you on how the science of systems is the foundational knowledge of every system in the universe. The third book, Your Body, Your System, focuses on how to understand the interplay of these systems within your own body. And then the fourth book, Your System, Your Life, will help you apply these principles to other aspects of your life, such as running a business, understanding relationships, and more. Beyond the curriculum and books, the second capability is the technologies that you will be afforded. One of them is a powerful Your Body, Your System software, which is an online laboratory where you can use your body as a system to further deepen your understanding of the science of systems. The tool allows you to understand what kind of system you are. Is your system on course or is it off course? And how the inputs of food, supplements, herbs, activities such as sleep, yoga, meditation, exercise can affect your body to bring it back on course. Finally, to support your education, I've also included a seminal scientific paper that I wrote which will help you understand that the knowledge of systems it does not only originate in the modern world starting in the 1920s and 30s, but it actually dates back 10 to 20,000 years and intersects directly with the foundations of Eastern systems of medicine. In addition to this, you will also get two scientific papers sharing how the science of systems can also be used to apply to understanding how food is medicine. One paper exposes turmeric from the molecular systems level and how it affects your body. The other paper explores ginger and how that affects your body. That's just the educational piece. As you raise your consciousness through this education, you will likely want to connect with other Truth Freedom Health Warrior Scholars in an environment where you can connect and build community. To support that, I've also created two powerful social media tools. One of 
of them is a VA Shiva forum. Here you can start discussions, you can pose questions and meet others and have healthy debates. The other is VA Shiva social, where you can create your own profile, your own presence, like other major social media tools. However, it is independent of big tech. You can use VA Shiva social to interconnect with your fellow Truth, Freedom, Health warrior, scholars, and build community. Beyond the education capability and the social media capability, the platform also enables you to take action by disseminating your knowledge on the ground and into your local online and offline communities. Powerful educational cards and research are included so you can pass these cards to your friends and neighbors that provide them summarized content which further directs them to online research and education. In addition to this, the activism component also provides you many, many short one-minute educational video content, memes, and text, allowing you to quickly craft messages for your Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and other pages so you can deliver content to educate others and drive them to longer educational posts on VA Shiva. VA Shiva is fundamentally an enabling platform for you to get the truth, freedom, and health you deserve through education, technology, and activism. I hope you become a truth, freedom, and health warrior scholar today. Thank you. All right, everyone, I hope you have a good day. Hope that was valuable. And keep an eye out for our clips and segments also that will be coming shortly. Be well, have a good night, and uh, become a truth, freedom, and health warrior. So this is not about just lamenting and uh, talking about what we can't do. This is actually about doing something, and that's something very tangible that you can do. As we say, get educated or be enslaved. I hope you get educated. Be well. Thank you.